Okay, um, the microphones are here, and uh, I got some more things. I, I looked up with a clock this morning, and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Um, but I'll let you guys start off. If not, I got some things I want to say, but um, thoughts or questions from this morning, and uh, Luke, Luke 8. Zach. Uh, my question is about when you were saying that the Isaiah 6 passage is of seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear is mainly judgment for idol worship. Mm -hmm. What was the like idol worship of Israel at that time? Oh. It doesn't seem like it was similar to like judges or something where they were just worshiping Baal and Ashtaroth and all these other gods of other nations. Go back to Isaiah 2. Um, that's a great question. Um, go back to Isaiah 2. Verse 6. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols, and they bow down to the work of their hands and to what their fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. It's a pretty stark statement. Um, go to the end of Joshua. I mentioned this in the message, but I'll never forget when Steve Hobbs, I was at Word of Life, he was the dean of men, was teaching a class on, on Joshua. Everyone's got this above their door. Um, you know, it's for me and my house, so worship the Lord. But I think what people miss is what's really going on there. Go to the end of Joshua. Um, there's a name for a worshiper of one central God who also worships other gods. It's called henotheism. Henotheism is the belief in one great central God, but also acknowledging other gods. And frequently, that, that seems to be, in many respects, the way Israel frequently dealt with the Lord, that when they worshiped the Baals and the Ashtaroths, um, it wasn't that it, from their perspective that they were stopping worshiping the Lord. It was in addition. And it, it generally boiled down to economics. Um, and in an agrarian society, what do you need? You need rain. You need the crops and you need kids. And so these fertility rituals, when you read about every high tree and every tall pole, on these hills and in these gardens, they'd, they'd cut trees to fit in with a fertility cult. I'll let you, I'll go that far. Um, and they'd worship around it frequently. It would be orgiastic, be sexual in nature. Um, and the thought in so doing, they're inviting fertility. That's why they'd burn their kids as well. Uh, to Baal, it was, I'll offer up my fruit, give me the crop's fruit. I mean, so in that respect, we're killing our kids today for the same reason. It's all economics. I mean, we just think, we feel better about it because we do it in sterile rooms with people with, you know, MDs and stuff. And they did it, oh, those pagans, they did it out in the fields. In one sense, they're being more honest, you know. But it, nothing changes. The spirit of the age is the same. But in, in Joshua 24... Um, where Joshua makes that statement, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Watch what's happening. So we pick it up in verse 14. 
Three times Joshua is going to call on them, and three times they don't respond, and the silence becomes deafening. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now that's good as far as it goes. And I suggest that for those of you who may have that over your door, that's great. I would also suggest that if you're the theocratic leader of Israel, that's kind of weak sauce. Because what does Moses do when he comes down from the mountain, catches them worshiping the golden calf? Does he say, well, if that's what you want to do, fine. Me and my... he, Levites, get your swords, cut people down. And I would suggest to you, the reason we have the anarchy in Judges is in part because Joshua doesn't respond the way Moses responded. Um, in, in, um, and just compare Moses' feral address in Deuteronomy 29 and 30 with this. So Joshua himself is faithful. Good for Joshua. That's great for husbands and households. But if you're the theocratic leader of Israel and you've got the authority to bear the sword and to tell the Levites, go mow them down, which is exactly what Moses does at the golden calf. That's how Levi gets its priesthood. For him to just say that and not do anything is kind of wee-woo. So that's the first time he tells them. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake. Notice what they aren't saying. Is they're clever. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. We won't stop worshiping the Lord to worship other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who did those great signs in the sight of the presence of all the people in the way that we went and among all the peoples to whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Whatever else we do, we won't stop worshiping the Lord. Now Joshua isn't satisfied because there's no mention that they actually get rid of their idols. There's no mention that they actually stop worshiping these other gods. Just, no, no, what, don't worry, Joshua. We will never stop worshiping the Lord. Get rid of your idols. Nope, no, no, we will also serve the Lord. But Joshua said to the people, verse 19, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is holy God, and he is a jealous God, so it's not going to work. He's jealous. You can't two-time him. You can't make a cuckold of the living God. That's what Hosea is about. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. People said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves, that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. What don't they ever do in that passage? Get rid of the idols. Three times. And all they keep saying is, don't worry, Joshua, we will not stop serving the Lord. We will worship the Lord. The modern equivalent is God gets the biggest piece in my life. Oh, I've got other gods I give littler pieces to, but I make sure God gets Sunday and God gets Wednesday, but Thursday is my day, baby. 
I had a guy tell me that once back in New Hampshire. And, and it was like, his approach was, you could be faithful to God as long as you got the biggest piece. God wants all of it. God wants your work. He wants you to work heartily as unto him. He wants your marriage. He wants husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. He wants your children that you rear in the fear and admonition of the Lord. He wants your leisure. He wants your play. He wants your all. He wants your heart and your soul and your mind. And he will not, he's jealous, he will not be content for the biggest slice. That's henotheism. Um, so, so back to your question. No, I, idols have plagued Israel from, from the very beginning, from the golden calf to here, through the book of Judges. And then go to Ezekiel. You want to know, you ask specifically what's going on in their day. Ezekiel is the prophet around at the deportation. At the deportation, when Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, Ezekiel is part of the first wave. In Ezekiel's context, he's by the Kabar River on the outskirts of Babylon. So you got three prophets functioning at the same time, concurrent with each other. You got Jeremiah, who's in Israel. You've got Zechariah, who's in the outskirts of Babylon with the normal folk, and you got Daniel, who's in the capital city. And they're all, and they're aware of it. It's pretty cool. Daniel referenced it like they're reading each other. It's pretty cool. There's like intertextuality between these three guys. So God has risen up three prophets. And because Israel's taken in waves, the first wave's taken. Zechariah's, I mean, Ezekiel's with them. And there's still people left in Israel. And the people who are in Babylon are coming to him wanting to hear word of what's going on in Israel because they're still hopeful that Israel's going to be supreme, that Jerusalem will not fall. Because even though God sent Isaiah to them for like 40 years telling them, Jeremiah, pretty. you can go to parts of Jeremiah. Seriously, guys, don't fight back. You're going to lose. So much so that when Nebuchadnezzar takes over the city, he wants to reward Jeremiah. Now, he sets him up with a stipend because he heard about how Jeremiah was like, no, seriously, just, just surrender. The Lord will not give you victory. Do not fight this man. You go to the end of Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar sets him up with a stipend and a house and a food allowance. Nebuchadnezzar's like, my man... Um, and probably not like that. Would probably have been more Babylonian, but you know that's my best Babylonian impression. Um, okay, I should probably stick to my day job. Okay, Ezekiel. Um, yeah, yeah. Fourteen. And in fact, this is this is a key passage in the shifting of the notion of idolatry. Um, because the New Testament runs with what we see here. But we talk about idols of the heart all the time. This is the only passage in the Bible I'm aware of. And if you find one, I'd love to know of another one. I'm not saying there aren't any, but I've only come across one that actually uses that metaphor. It's Ezekiel 14. Then certain elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? So they're not outward idolaters. They haven't set up poles and images. But the same thing is going on in their hearts. And God, and, and they're coming, as, and it looks good. They come, they sit before God's prophet. They seek him out. Hey, do you have a word from the Lord for us? And God says, uh-uh. <laughs> uh-uh. Any of the household of Israel who takes idols into his heart and sets a stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, yet comes to the prophet, I will answer him as he comes in the multitude of his idols. 
that I may lay hold of the heart of the house of Israel, who are estranged from me through their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of the people. And you shall know that I am the Lord. By the way, look down at verse 14. There's the reference of them aware of each other. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, contemporaneous, he knows of Daniel, and Job were in it, they would not deliver, they would only deliver their own lives. The city is so wicked, so corrupt, that even, this is a bold statement, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in Jerusalem interceding for it, they would only save themselves. That's a remarkable statement. Of, it, it's the finality. You've gone too far. There is no turning back. Now, there will be a remnant who survives through this. I will not put Israel to another end. But this is one of those points where God, no, stop interceding. He does this with Ezekiel. He tells him, stop praying for them. Stop it. And, um, and no, it, it's done. The judgment is set. And, and Jesus knows that um, Israel, Israel is not going to receive their Messiah. The judgment is set. It will be horrific. The gospel will be taken. This is the language of Matthew. The gospel will be taken from you and given to a people or a nation bearing its fruit. And then we see ultimately the destruction of 70 AD being the sort of the, the visible stamp of that as they lose their place, as, as the natural born, natural cultivated olive branches are cut from the tree and cast off and wild olive branches are sown on and grafted on. Jesus in Luke 8 is saying, just as Isaiah was sent to do this, so am I. This is the part I wanted to get at. The part I want to get this morning, I was sort of piggybacking here, is this. How is it that Jesus enacts the hardening? It's because light and truth by its very nature, like heat, heat will do one of two things. It'll either melt and soften or harden, right? So you put, you put clay in an oven, it comes out rock hard. Wax melts. And so Jesus' ministry resolves the tension one way or the other. How does Jesus harden them? He makes people who would appear religious and nice by what he says and what he does cry out, kill him, kill him. We have no king but Caesar. He gets them there. They get to that point of hardness as he preaches the truth and his light shining on them. And, and so we see by the end of the gospel, um, this man is not our king. We have no king but Caesar. Take him away, crucify, crucify. Yeah. He, he hardens them. Um, his truth has that effect. For some, it is life and it is for light, but just as cockroaches run, run from the lights when you turn them on, his light does the same thing. And, and, and it hardens people where they are. And, and it brings that result. And, and Jews are going to say things in a few years they would never dream of saying right here and now. Um, but in their anger and in their um, conviction and their disgust and their fear, they're going to they're go and... Swear fealty to Caesar if you'll just kill him. So that, that's, that's part of the, the thread I wanted to get. Like, that's where this is headed. 
And Jesus isn't going to respond to that. He's not even saying, Luke wants Theophilus to know, it wasn't like, oh, Jesus tried really hard and, well, he did the best he can. No, Jesus is fully aware from the beginning. National Israel is not going to listen because national Israel is that type of idolatrous, hardened people. Not idolatrous from other gods. This is where the New Testament takes this. Go to, um, go to uh, Ephesians 5. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. See, we can feel pretty comfortable talking about idolatry as long as we're thinking about like carving poles and overlaying them with gold. And, and then Paul says something like this. Covetousness, being, you know, being discontent, wanting something somebody else has, being unhappy, grumbling with where you are, what you have is idolatry. Why? Because I value these things that I don't have, but you do, more than I value God. It, we're back to the garden, right? We're back to the garden. Will we trust God? He said, you can't have this, but I want the fruit on the tree. Will we trust that he has good reasons for why he hasn't given us these things we want? There's sometimes we want good things, things that are good. God, in his own wisdom, says no or not now or later. And we then choose whether we worship the living God or whether we worship that thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it just starts getting convicting pretty fast. It's a lot easier when we're talking about things I'm not tempted to do. You and I are not likely to go, you know, bow down before other gods externally. Um, go, to, go to James 4. This is a, a poor translation by the ESV, although not many other passages get it right either. John Piper put in an email, a, a request to them to fix it. Um, he did. Well, no, one of the nice things about modern translations is they're constantly updating. I mean, I guarantee you my ESV is probably a little bit off from yours because mine's an older... They, they do major editions every decade or so, but they'll, they'll just... If you've got a digital Bible, it'll, it'll be updating. So th there is actually the possibility they could fix it. Um, the problem is they take the plural feminine word um, malakoi, I think, is that what... Anyway, it means adulteresses, feminine plural, and turn it into adulterous people. Well, you know that whereas plural masculine nouns may represent a mixed group. The reverse is not true. And so in James 4, when, he, when ESV says, you adulterous people, verse 4, you don't make the connection that you do when you're called an adulterous wife. All of a sudden, the book of Ezekiel just starts blasting you, right? We're not adulterous people, we're adulteresses. What makes us, and that, and that by the way, is the other major metaphor for idolatry. That, that the people of Israel at Sinai entered into a covenant of marriage with God, and they, they leave his um, marriage, and they go and fornicate with other gods. They're committing spiritual adultery under every high tree, with every, with every um, you know, you, you go through Ezekiel, it gets actually pretty graphic and disgusting, and then it just keeps going. 
and just about, okay, I get it, I get it, it keeps going. And the second you get this, what James is saying is what they're doing with their idolatry, we're doing here. What are we doing? Verse two, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulteresses do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. I love the things of this world more than I love God. I worship the creation rather than the creator. There it is. That is idolatry. To worship the creation rather than the creator. Go to Romans 1. I know that in the text. There's, there's like good 15 or 20 minutes left in this sermon that just we didn't get to do because I've managed my time poorly. Okay, Romans 1. That same lex talionis, that notion of the punishment fitting the crime, um, that God gives a fitting punishment to this, and that same notion of your and my inability is our guilt. It isn't the excuse of our guilt. It is precisely one of the things that makes us guilty is something Paul gets at here. Romans 1, 16, we'll start at 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteous, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now I want you to get something. You've probably heard me say this a number of times. There is no passage in the scripture like this that forms my view of man. This challenges my view of man and it informs my view of man. Unbelieving that your neighbor, my neighbor, that nice person down the street who's another, whatever. Romans 1, 2, and 3 is, is just so foundational. And we, we tend to see the horizontal sins as the big sins. You talk to people, murder, rape, um, child abuse, um, drug dealers, um, those types of things, are the ones that we get up in arms about, and, and those are terrible. But the vertical sins, we don't generally get so upset about. We, what's, what's really so wrong with pride? Like Alyssa says, nothing when she does it. Um, yeah, I don't like it when you, yeah. And yet, I want you to notice the root and the fruit. Working backwards, jump down to the last paragraph, 28, you will get a laundry list of sin. I mean, he'll get there, he'll get there. And he'll get, therefore, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Whew. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but to give approval to those who practice them. Now that's the list where we go, yeah, that's sin. That is all the evidence of what's going on at the top of the passage. Notice how verse 28 began. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to an unacknowledged mind. There's a play on words in Greek. It doesn't show up here. They didn't see fit to approve God, so God gave them an unapproved mind, and the proof that God gave them over to this unapproved mind is this laundry list of sins. These sins are their guilt. Want proof that unbelieving man has got a depraved mind, been judged by God? Look at the way he's living. 
But that's the final third God gave them up. You see it in 28, but look back in 26. For this reason, God gave them up. Look back in 24. For this reason, God gave them up. Really, what happens in Romans 1 is the primary charge of the prosecution comes out, and then we see God's judgment in response three times. That's the flow of the argument. They do something really, really bad up here, then here's how God responds, and he gave them up, and he gave them up, and he gave them up. So the root of the problem is not that laundry list. Here's the root of the problem. Verse 18, why is God angry? Why is wrath being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth? And he goes on, what do you mean? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made so that they are without an excuse. This is why I'm an atheist. I don't believe in atheists. Not that, and here's the here's this, this sorrowful thing of this passage, you want to believe a lie long enough, you will. This gets back to that willful inability in the same way that eventually a person giving themselves to drugs or alcohol, pornography, whatever, can become enslaved to it. The guilt is not even as much where they are right now. Where they are right now is the proof of the days, months, and years where they brought themselves and presented themselves as an obedient servant day after day, month after month, year after year. It is their guilt. You, you want to stick your fingers in your ears long enough. You want to shut your eyes and be like a child in the nursery saying, I can't see you, I can't hear you, you're not there. And one day, you can't open your eyes anymore. That is your guilt. It doesn't excuse you from guilt. I, it's not my fault, I can't see. The only reason you can't see is you've been engaged in closing your eyes. And you, you, the reason you can't see the equipment because you clawed your eyes out. That, that's why you can't see. It doesn't remove your guilt. It establishes it. And then watch. So Paul, Paul makes it clear. They knew God. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. What's, what's God really angry about? It's not this laundry list at the end. It's really simple. You saw me. You saw my glory. You didn't choose to be thankful. You didn't choose to honor me. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Idolatry is, by definition, the worship of the creation rather than the creator. There it is. And it's done willfully, and it's done with intent, and it's done with your eyes wide open, at least it is at first. Now, over time, we're going to see with these giving overs and giving overs, man's going to end up with a depraved mind, depraved morals, all types of confused, darkened. But all of that, all of what follows is in response to this, eyes wide open stuff. So eyes wide open, know what you're doing here in verses 18 through 23. And then consequences happen. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. So he repeats the charge again. 
You were made to worship God. You were made to relate with God. You, you threw that away, and you said, I want to relate to stuff. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now, notice the similarity of words. Here's that same principle. It's a slightly different way of working out. For their women exchanged natural relations for the contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty there. Do you get this? In this passage, the argument of Paul, it's not that God judges homosexuality and lesbianism, it's that those things are his judgment. You want to know if God's going to judge America? I'm telling you, the Supreme Court ruling was the judgment. Because what God's saying here is I'm going to give certain people over to act out physically what we're all doing spiritually. We all spiritually have a corresponding, fitting, appropriate relationship with God, and we don't want that, and we change it for an unnatural one that we weren't made for. Nothing in this world can satisfy us. Nothing in this world can fill that desire in our hearts. We are made, we correspond to worship God. Nope, get rid of that. I'm exchanging that for this unnatural thing. Okay, I'm gonna give over a portion of your society to be a living parable to that. Not that that isn't sinful, but in the argument of Romans 1, it is the judgment. It's the evidence of the judgment. How do you know if God's judged a culture, a people? Because Romans 1, 24 through 27 has happened. That's how. It is the judgment. It's the evidence of the judgment. 28. When we finally get to where we started, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. And there's a word play in Greek. There's a Greek verb, um, deca- um, no, krino. Um, and it means to judge, to verify. Krino, right? Is it krinomai? Yeah. It's, and the picture is kind of like, you ever get like a shirt and it's like this shirt was inspected by number seven, you know, or whatever, you know, you get the inspectors. That's the concept. It's to approve that you evaluate something and thumbs up or thumbs down. And they had the, the epigonosco, the full knowledge of God, and they looked at that and they said, that's not worth keeping. That's un- it does not pass the test. Get rid of it. And then the word play is this. Therefore, God gave them up and he puts the alpha primitive, which is how you negate something. So you've got moral and amoral, symmetrical and asymmetrical. So the alpha primitive negates the word or puts it opposite. He gave them an ah, krinomai mind. I think it's ah, uh, dakamadzo. No, dakamadzo. Is it dakamadzo? I don't know. Okay. But do you see the word play there? I could be, yeah, I, I thought it was krinomai. Yeah, it's... Um, so they, they viewed, they didn't judge God worth keeping, so God gave them an unjudged mind or some, some wordplay. The reason why that's important is that accounts for the confusion they're in now. It's basically God saying this. You'll see the, the sort of lex talionis principle. You want, if someone's trying to be, make themselves blind, someone's trying to stick their fingers in the air, oh, you want to think perverse and wicked thoughts, do you? Oh, you want to think foolishly, do you? Here's a mind that does that really, really well. That's my judgment for you. And then you're kind of stuck there. And that's why we can't turn around and say, wait, it's not my fault, I can't see. You can't blame me, because I can't hear. No, your blindness is your guilt. It's the proof of, of what we've all been doing. Um, by the way, go to Romans 12. We're, wow, we're over time. We'll end here. Um, I, I had the great privilege at Master's College of sitting under uh, C.W. Smith 
in the final months of his life, and he was teaching a book on Romans, ravaged by cancer. He died about two or three months after he finished the class, just teaching. Just, his suits were too big. I mean, just, I remember he was a southern gentleman, and um, he had lost all his hair from chemo, and I remember him starting the class saying, I've, I've taught this class now more often from my Greek New Testament alone than from English. Like, I will, so I've got this guy teaching. He's facing eternity. got one foot in heaven. You know, and he pointed, he's the guy that pointed out that word play in chapter one. And then he pointed out that Paul sets that principle in motion. What are we going to do? What are we going to do about the fact that because we're sinful, we've got this sinful, unapproved mind? Paul doesn't pick that back up and deal with it till chapter 12. But then he does, right? And I'll just end here. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern, well, that's the word, approve, really. It's approve. What is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect? If we will not be conformed to this world, but if instead by the Spirit we will be transformed, what was made wrong through sin can be made right. The blindness that we experienced willfully can, can, can more and more we can see as we are transformed into God's image so that we now can look at God and his will and say, I approve of that, I want to do that, I, 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 I like that, yes. Whereas before we said, no, get that away from me. Okay. We got to go. I'm over. Thank you for your patience. Um, part two next week. God bless.